morning, Unionville Alliance Church. It's my great privilege to be with you today. And I'd also like to welcome those of you who are online and those of you who will be watching later on this week. Today is Palm Sunday, and we've had a great time of celebration so far. And this day marks the first day of what we in the Christian calendar call Holy Week. It's the time where we remember, starting today with that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the last events of Jesus' life in the last week that he lived. And this will culminate next week when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. So today and throughout this week, we're going to be focusing on the I am statements of Christ. And we begin today with the statement that Jesus is king. Now when you say this, we may not really, really grasp what it means in our Western world. Because our idea of king is vastly different from the idea that may have been in the audience who first heard it. Let me tell you a story. Margaret Trudeau, she is a Canadian author and activist. She may be more familiarly known as the mother of our current prime minister. She's been very, very open about her difficulties with mental health. She writes about it, and she's talked on several, several occasions to various media outlets, and she was interviewed about this situation. And she recounts this one story, that one time she had to be admitted into a hospital psychiatric ward. And while she was there, she conversed with a fellow patient. So the two of them were talking back and forth, and that conversation ended, and she went on her merry way. A little while later, she heard the same person talking to yet another person and just bemoaning the fact that she did not like being where she was, in this place full of crazies. And then she points to Miss Trudeau and says, and that lady there, she's super crazy. She thinks she's Margaret Trudeau. <laughs> it is funny, but it brings home to us the idea that we in Canada don't really, really grasp what it means to be royalty or to be a monarch. And if someone says to you, oh, I'm king or I'm queen, we might question their ability to perceive reality. But in the mind of an Near ancient Near East person, the idea of king was very different than it is today. The, the, the king in those days, for, first of all, was by far the most popular form of government. Everyone was ruled by a king, or every country. And a king's responsibility was basically to maintain law and order in their society. Uh, they were responsible for protecting the people, which is why the kings would often lead the army in battle. And they would just try to make sure that people in their country were able to have a good life. They may, may build infrastructure and that sort of thing. But in return, a king had absolute authority. What the king said is what got done. And ladies, I am sorry, but the reality is queens were the exception to the rule. In the ancient times, it was kings who ruled. And a king, if was benevolent, may do a good job in ruling the people. But if it was a tyrant, the people's lives were terrible. Let me give you an example. Another place in the Bible, 
we, we read about a certain king. And this was King Xerxes. And to tell you the truth, I would never want to live under the rule of this king. But it was such that everybody knew that if he was in his inner, inner chamber, and if you walked in unannounced, and he did not welcome you, that was the end of your life. So you could imagine his servants, if they had to go in, uh, no, it's not my turn, it's your turn. I went last time. <laughs> because their lives was at risk. So you could see the amount of authority they had. And with that much power, you could imagine that people were jealous and wanted some of this power for themselves. So if you were a king, you had to be very, very vigilant to protect your throne. Anybody could be suspect, even your own children, of stealing the kingdom from you by force. And we see this. We see this in the example of the Christmas story. When Jesus was born, the Magi came to King Herod and asked, where is the king that has been born king of the Jews? And all of a sudden, Herod did not like this word king. And we're talking about a newborn infant. And suddenly, a newborn infant is a threat to the throne. So what does he do? He orders all the little children, all the male children to be killed. So we in our modern day, when we have this idea of king, that is really not anybody who has any type of rule over us, we may say to ourselves, you know what? I don't like this idea of king. After all, I'm independent, I have autonomy, and I do not want this type of rule over me. I want to exercise my independence. After all, we're in a democratic nation. So we balk and we say no thank you and we shut our ears. And if you're thinking of that, I beg you just to stay listening because this will change. I would like, first of all, to say, for us to really be honest and consider, are we really that independent? Are we really that free? Let me give you a couple of examples. I have a nice little bucket hat here. It's a Canadian Olympic one. And I've been told recently that bucket hats are in style this summer. Woohoo! I can wear my hat. And it's Canadian, so it's super cool, okay? So I am so pleased and I'm so happy that I can wear my bucket hat. Next summer, same hat. Ooh, no thanks. Don't want to wear it. People might see me wearing it. They're going to say, oh, that's so last year. And my question is, who made that decision? Was it some people in some corporate center, um, in some fashion center of the world? Was it some influential person who wore it and suddenly it becomes cool? Who made that decision that makes you feel that you can or cannot wear something? That you feel good about wearing it or you don't feel good about wearing it? You feel embarrassed. Who made the decision? Why aren't we challenging that person or those people? Why aren't we challenging the system that makes that? No, we bow down to it. Well, fashion may not be your thing, but there are other things that we bow down to and we accept and we live our lives according to it. If it's not fashion trends, materialism is something else that just grabs us and controls the way we live. And Pastor Daniel spoke to us about that a few weeks ago. And then we have food. How some people, their entire lives is controlled by food, either by eating too much of it or abstaining from it. 
They miss out on things that they can enjoy because of their commitment or their, uh, their bondage to this idea of food. And then we get anger. How many people allow their anger to totally take over, out of control? They're no longer in control of themselves. Their anger becomes the ones that's controlling them, and then they get themselves into trouble, they regret what they say, they regret what they do. They've bowed down to that. We've got addictions and social media, the quest for riches. Oh, how we put our lives in wanting more and wanting more and working harder so we can have more money. And in the process, what are we losing? We're possibly losing relationships. We're possibly losing the enjoyment of the present. Uh, fear and worry is something else that we bow down to and it consumes our lives and we allow it to take control of the way we live. Vices and sinful nature and the list goes on. So my point is not that whether or not you should be wearing something fashionable. No, that's not at all the point. The point is simply that if we think we're independent and autonomous, we're not that independent and autonomous. We as human beings bow down to certain things and say, okay, this is the way I will live. This is how I will feel. This is how I will think because we are influenced by certain people, certain systems and certain ways. So if that is the case and we pay a price for all these things we bow down to, is it possible then that we can consider bowing down to Jesus as a king? King in the sense of the ancient times when they were considered complete and total absolute monarchs. Well, let's go. Let's go into that. So for today, I'm going to talk about just two questions, two very simple questions that I'm going to attempt to answer. The first one is, what kind of king is Jesus? And the second one is, how should I respond to this claim? Just two. All right. And we're going to do the same thing that Power Up did. So on the count of three, we are going to say these things together. One, two, three. What kind of king is Jesus? How should I respond to his claim? Well done. I was almost sure that I was going to have to do it a second time. But you impressed me. Thank you. That is so great. What kind of king is Jesus? How should I respond to his claim? So at the end of this message, I will attempt to have addressed both those questions. So let us begin. We're not going to begin with that triumphal entry of Jesus because Jesus as king starts way before that. We are going to go hundreds of years before that. And we're going to talk about the Israelites at a time when they were slaves in Egypt. Now, the Israelites were taken into Egypt because of a famine. A famine drew them there and they were welcomed they were welcomed as foreign guests. They were given a piece of land, and there they stayed, and they multiplied, they settled, and things were honky-dory. They were living with the Egyptians, but not mixing with the Egyptians. The Egyptians, of course, thought themselves more superior than those Hebrews, so they stayed separate. But they were welcomed. And that was fine, except one day, that particular king died, and others came in their place. And eventually, a king rose who was ruthless and did not like the Hebrews. Remember, I told you that kings had to protect their thrones. 
And suddenly, this new king was threatened by those Hebrews because there were so many of them. So he thinks to himself, man, there's so many of them. If they decide to get together, there's enough of them that they can overtake. We don't want that. So he enslaves them. They become slaves. The riches and the greatness of Egypt is built on the backs of the Hebrews. Life for them is miserable. They are beaten. They are deprived of the basic necessities of life. They are deprived of living uh, a regular life, a free life. They are worked to the bone. Um, And they are forced to be in poverty and they are forced to work hard. And in this way, they could never get together and uh, mount a coup or something. They cry out to God because this is really, really difficult for them. And God answers their prayer. God sends a man named Moses as his spokesperson to come to Egypt and release the Israelites. And so he does. Moses goes to e- down to Egypt, tells the king, let my people go. And then proceeds quite a long story about all the ways and all the ways that God reveals his power to the Egyptians. At this point in time, it is very clear to the Hebrews that God is their king and Moses is their spokesperson or his spokesperson. And God reveals his power and his glory and his authority to rule nature, to rule every power that's against this people and he releases them. He parts the Red Sea for them. They walk across and in the desert where they stay for some time, God takes care of them. He feeds them. Every day there's fresh food for them. Uh, their, their shoes don't wear out. He takes care of them the whole time they're there. Then he settles them in their land, and then every tribe gets their own portion, and every, portion, every tribe kind of takes care of themselves in their little portion of land. They're a nation united under God. They're a theocracy. Their king is God. And they had uh, a leader who would have been a religious leader, a prophet, And that person would lead them and would tell them about God, uh, would teach them the the law that God gave them, and they would live. God had given them a law, which in itself was something magnificent, because all the nations around them never could conceive the idea that we can actually speak to God. For them, they lived a life of fear, always trying to appease their gods. But the Hebrews were different because God specifically told them, hey, to live a prosperous life, live like this. So they were leaps and bounds ahead of their neighbors. And so they were this nation, united under God. The tribes had their own portion. But time marches on. They eventually forgot the word of God and that law. And then they started to mesh in to what the world was like. And eventually they get to this point in their time uh, in Israel and they start thinking to themselves, hmm, here we are, a small little nation. We're a tribal confederation. We have no human king. And to our north, we have a superpower, Mesopotamia. And to our south, we have another superpower, Egypt. We're in trouble here. If either of those two powers decide to invade, invade us, we are gone. We need a king. We need a king who's going to unite our nation, who's going to rise up a powerful army and is going to defend us against these two superpowers. 
Doesn't that make sense? Think about it. From a human perspective, that's logical. That makes sense. They want a king. Well, here's the problem. They already have a king. They've had a very, very faithful king who has been extremely faithful them, to them for over 400 years, who has taken care of their every need, who has proven himself that he is there to serve them and not to be served. But that's not tangible. But they've become so integrated in their population, or sorry, their culture, that now they're thinking like the world thinks, like their neighbors think, and they want a king. So they go to their leader, their religious leader at this time is Samuel. And they say, hey, Samuel, we want a king. Samuel is very saddened by this request. And he goes to God and says, God, these people want a king. So God says to Samuel, they have not rejected you. They've rejected me. Give them their request. But first, tell them what this king will do. And then if they want to make that decision, okay. So Samuel says to them, listen, if you really want a king, I want you to understand, first of all, how this king is going to rule you. And he gives them this long warning. And you can see there, the yellow and the green. What is this king going to do? You'll notice all the yellow, the his and the he referring to the king. This king is eventually going to take everything you own, and it's going to be his. His. His land. His people. His army. And then the green, what's it going to cost you? So in this page, we have your sons. And then it moves on to your daughters, the best of your fields, your vineyards. And it's going to be for his officials. Do you see what's happening here? This king is going to be very different than the king you now have. And it goes on. He's going to take a tenth of your grain and your grape, grape, uh, grape harvest and your male and female slaves. So eventually, this king is going to take all this stuff and it's going to be his and it's going to be in his power and it's going to cost you a lot. So there's this decision they have. Do we keep our king who's been faithful to us for 400 years or do we go with this human king who can lead us into battle? They choose the human king. Kind of sounds odd from this perspective, but maybe at that time, they had so, they've gotten so far away from the law that they kind of maybe didn't believe it. But in fact, this is exactly what happened, came to pass. As they had kings in their time of having kings, they ended up having 43 kings. And of those 43 kings, 36 of them did evil and seven did good. And those that did evil ended up taking Israel further and further away from God. And eventually, they were taken away captive. And that's the backstory as we come into the triumphal entrance of Jesus. Because the Israelites have already rejected him as king. And in his loving care, he did not give up on them. He comes back to them another point in their history when they're again under foreign rule, this time against the Romans. And he doesn't send a spokesperson this time. He doesn't send a Moses. God incarnate comes to the people in the person of Jesus. In the person of Jesus to say, I am king, but I am inaugurating a different kingdom than what you're used to. Let us watch now a quick video 
about this entrance. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! entrance into Jerusalem was the culmination of three years of public ministry that Jesus was doing. And in those three years, the people, some of the people in the crowd would have seen and would have heard and would have been recipients of some of the things that he had done. This is what they saw in those three years. Well, they saw him calm a storm, showing that he had authority over nature. He healed the sick. He showed power over evil spirits. He raised the dead. Think about it. The finality of death was not final with Christ. He had great military power. In the garden, when it was time for him to be crucified and the soldiers came and looking for him, they found him unarmed and very calm. And they asked him, who are you looking for? And he says, and they, sorry, he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus, I am he was his response. And with those simple words, I am he, three words, the entire crowd just falls to the floor, smash, they're down. This wasn't just any crowd. These were trained soldiers. So they were fit, all of them. And they were there, uh, and they were armed, and they were ready, and Jesus says, I am he, and bang, they're all down. What power he had. Could you imagine being one of those soldiers and going home that night? Hey, honey, how was your day at work today? Well, let me tell you. It was different. He had authority that no other human being had. He had what it takes to be a king. Not only that, he not only showed his power, he taught certain things. He taught through his words and his actions to love your enemies. Now, this was a profound change of what people thought. Loving those who love you, taking care of those in your tribe, oh yes, but loving your enemy, that was very, very different. Give generously. Consider others above yourselves. Welcome foreigners. Take care of the vulnerable. Freely forgive. Love God and your neighbor. 
and he acted different from different monarchs. He welcomed the homeless, the outcast, and the loveless. He gave hope to those who had no hope. He gave freedom to those who were captive. And he never, ever used this authority and power for his own gain. Never. And he talked about his kingdom. It wasn't like he was um, threatening King Caesar, but he was talking about a kingdom that was radically different from the one that they were living in. And he was saying, um, the kingdom is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Very, very different. It seemed that he had what it took to be a king and that he certainly was a loving king. But the religious leaders did not like this one bit. They were extremely angry because for them, they were threatened. They had a life that allowed them to have some privileges. In fact, they enjoyed a lot of privilege. They enjoyed a lot of power. They enjoyed a lot of honor amongst the Jewish people. They didn't want to lose that. And in fact, Jesus criticized them. He silenced their arguments and embarrassed them in public. He called them out on the fact that they may have looked religious and wore all the religious garb and said all the religious words, but their hearts were not right. So they wanted an opportunity to kill him. Problem is, they did not have the authority to do that because they weren't government. So they had to convince Pilate the governor to kill Jesus. They had to do, they had to do that convincing. So when they did, when it was finally time for the trial of Jesus, it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders who were there vehemently accusing him, one accusation after another. It wasn't the crowd. It was the religious leaders. The crowds were joyful. Some of them may have been thinking, wow, this is a new king. He's coming in, and yes, we will bow to this king because Caesar is not a good king to bow to. But the religious leaders were wanting to condemn him. And how did they use? How did they use? What argument did they use to actually convince? They used the same claim that Jesus was making. I am king. So they said, um, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. Whoa! Pilate's ears listened to that one. Why? Because Pilate is a governor, but he's not king. He has power, but not as much as Caesar's does. And in, in, if I was to take it into today's words, I might say, hey, Pilate, you see this Jesus. He's calling himself a king. And you know, if Caesar gets word of this, and it was under your watch, and you didn't do anything about it, Pilate, your job's on the line. Pilate, your life is on the line. Do you see the pressure that Pilate was under? And he gave in. He gave in and he gives Jesus out to uh, be condemned. And there's another thing that the Jewish leader said. We have no king but Caesar. They shouted back. What a slap in the face to God. Here he was, a faithful king to them, taking care of them all those years, and they rejected him. He gives them a human king. That didn't prove very profitable. Here they are again under another Roman uh, form of government. The Jewish leaders, they didn't like Caesar. They wanted Caesar gone. 
they were waiting for this Messiah who'd overthrow this uh, foreign government and that they could move on and live under their own rule. But here they are saying they're accepting Caesar who oppresses them because they want to reject Jesus. Why? I mean, Jesus did so many wonderful things. He raised the dead. He did all those beautiful things. But you see, they didn't want Jesus as king of their hearts because that meant they really had to be serious about what they taught. They had to live it. They had to step down from their pedestal. They had to welcome the poor. They had to welcome the foreigner. They had to do all these things. And whoa, I don't necessarily think I want to do that, is what they thought. So they killed the king of kings. So what kind of king was this? He was a king that, hold, that held power over death and evil. He came to serve and not be served. So radically different than all the other monarchs. He cared for the outcast. He's just loving, forgiven. And he transforms. This is the kind of king Jesus is. And that answers the first question. So now we move on to, how do I respond to this? Well, I can see two possible ways to respond to this claim. I am king, King Jesus. You can say, on this side, no thank you, I don't want you, please and thank you. I don't have a religion, I'm not religious, I don't believe any of this, no thank you. Or you can say, follow Jesus, no thank you. Look at what the church has done throughout ages. They're all hypocrites. You can be in that boat. And if that is the boat you're in, I would beg you to reconsider and consider Jesus. Not the church. For yes, the church has made many mistakes in the past and has really blown it in many cases. But consider Jesus, Jesus as king. You can go to the other side over here and you can respond with, yes, I do want Jesus as my king. I will bow to him. Because as I bow to him, the irony of it all is, I find out who I truly am. I enjoy myself to the max of who I was really, truly created to be. Thank you. Um, and if you're in that boat, be encouraged, because as a child of the kingdom, as a citizen of heaven, you have so much privilege. You have peace that passes all understanding, because Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Jesus will also be the shelter for your storm. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he'll be right beside you. He'll be the comfort of the spirit. When you're grieving and mourning, you'll sense his comfort. Have you ever had an opportunity where you just did not know what to do? The king will provide you wisdom. The king will provide you a new identity. The king will allow you to have friendship with God himself. The king will give you strength when you are weak. The king will give you joy in the midst of sorrow. And the king will give you courage when you are fearful. So those are the two ways that you can respond. But between here and here, there's a whole group in the middle. And you could say maybe that those people are sitting on the fence. But unfortunately, when it comes to the claim of I am king, there's no sitting on the fence. You're either here or you're here. If you sit on the fence, you're actually here. This group has fully not grasped 
the meaning of Jesus as king. Maybe this is a group of people who've maybe grown up in the church and have become familiar with Christian language and with prayers and how to speak, but they've never really taken the step to say, okay, Jesus is my king. Or they take the word king and make it synonymous with Jesus is my savior. Yeah, I kind of like Jesus as my savior. Whenever I'm in trouble, I can cry out to him and he helps me. Perfect. But no, but I'm still in control of my life. Not you, Jesus. No, thank you. Don't touch that part of my life. Then Jesus is not king. Let me give you a short illustration. If you happen to be a homeowner, or even if you live in an apartment, if Jesus comes to your door and you allow him to come in, but you don't allow him to move past the front door, that area of your house will have his peace, will have his love, will have his influence. And he'll start looking around and saying, you know what, look at the cobwebs up there. And you say, yeah, they're there. He says, don't worry, let me take it. And you allow him to take it down and he cleans it up. So that part of your house is totally cleaned up. But nothing else is. Nothing else is there because he's not going to tread on where you do not allow him to be king. So he stays at your front door. And if ever you need him, you come to the front door area and have a little chat with him. And then you go back to your kitchen and your bathrooms and your bedrooms and he's not there. He's not in those parts of your life. But he's standing in the front and he knows. He knows that you have a skeleton in your uh, spare bedroom closet. He knows that. And he knows that that uh, skeleton has really got a claim on you and really affecting the way you live. And although you think you're autonomous and, um, and you're independent, that skeleton is really affecting who you are and you're not living to the maximum of what he created you to be. But he won't go there because you have not given them the permission to. He's not your king. He could be just someone who's ending at your front door. So if, when we talk about king, we have to talk about absolute authority. So if Jesus is king, then he has to have absolute authority over us. He has to have authority over who we are, of our health, our possessions, our families, our work, our future, our hopes and dreams, our sexuality, our pain, our grief, our joys, our money, everything. And we discover that as we submit these things to him, we find we become fully ourselves. So we have that choice. And we come back to our questions. What are the questions again? Louder. Yes, what kind of king is Jesus and what do we do to his claim? Well, we found out that he is all-powerful. He has all authority to claim kingship. Not only that, he's extremely loving, and he is a king who is to, out to serve us and not be served. Then what do we do with his claim? We either accept or reject. Let us pray. Worship team, come on up. Lord God, we thank you for your mighty power that worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and you seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but is also in the one to come. And this king is willing to be our king. So we thank you, Lord, for being such a loving king. And may we submit totally and wholly to you. Amen.